You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's President's Day. Woo! It's a uh, federal holiday for all of the people who, at one point in their lives, didn't start a comedy fighting podcast that uh, made as its thing that it didn't take any weeks off. Yeah. Is the uh, is the Fortnite off today? No, I think they did the Fortnite. Because, you know, Ariel Helwani's from Canada, so he doesn't respect presidents. Of course. I should have known. Of course. That's... They, they have their own, I think, Prime Minister's Day or something. Sure they do. I think everybody gets a free coffee at Tim Hortons. <laughs> it's terrific. Well, all right. try it sometime. That, that actually sounds like it's worth going up there for. Uh, yeah, so here we are. You know, people write in sometimes to ask uh, for for tips on starting their own podcasts. And Why would they ask us? I, I, I don't know. Are they hoping make, we will forward it to a successful podcast? Because we make it look so damn easy. Oh, that must be it. Uh, and I always tell them, take, take a week off early. Early in the process, just bail on one week just so that your audience knows low. that that's yeah. a thing that will happen. Uh-huh. Not like us, who, like a couple of boneheads. Uh, decided to, to uh, do the damn podcast every single week. But see, now I'm getting a sense of why somebody might want to email us and ask for tips because they could just be like, tell us all the things you did wrong. And we can make a list, brother. Oh, yeah. Long list. Lengthy. Uh, anyway, because it's President's Day and I had to attend a child's birthday party this morning, uh, among other reasons, I uh, didn't have as much time as I normally do to quote-unquote plan the quote-unquote podcast. So we're going to do uh, all questions considered, kind of free-forming, wide-ranging discussion about a number of topics. There's actually a lot of stuff to talk about. And we got a lot of good questions. we got so a ton of good questions. Kind of makes which, sense. Uh, you know, emailers have been kind of making a practice out of sending us a bunch of good questions every week. So it's nice, I think. I prefer to think of that as us reaping the rewards of cultivating a literate audience. We're going to try to get to as many of these questions on as many of these different topics as we can. Uh, as you all know, this episode of the Co-Main Event, Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by the Men's Grooming Geniuses at Fulton & Rourke. Last week, we told you about Fulton & Rourke's new subscription service, which allows you to select which of their great products you want, how often you want them delivered, and then provides the ease of having it all shipped straight to your door via the mails. So I guess this week, we're in another classic what-are-you-waiting-for type scenario. You know, if it was up to me, I might pick up some of that Fulton & Rourke shave cream. You know, the uh, the one GQ magazine recently called the best on the market? Yeah, that one. Toss in some of the long-lasting bar soap formulated with eucalyptus, sage, and black spruce, or their go-anywhere solid colognes, and suddenly you'll be turning heads and pleasing noses everywhere you go. That doesn't even include Fulton & Rourke's easy aftershave cloths or the refreshing face wash. Look, the point is, we recommend you go online and check out the full menu of Fulton & Rourke offerings. I'm betting you can sign, find something you like. Subscribers will save money on every order. And like our own Breakfast of Champions newsletter, it's easy to cancel any time. If that sounds good to you, just go to FultonAndRourke.com and use the coupon code RITUAL to save an extra 10% off your first subscription shipment. Should we just get started? Why not? Let's dive right in. 
First question this week comes to us from Charlie Panville. He writes, guys, the heavyweight division looked like it was going to pull a heavyweight division and have Derek the Black Beast Lewis lose to Travis Brown. But then Lewis turned around and knocked him cold in the second round. I guess that in and of itself is a pretty heavyweight division thing to do. I know a lot of people are going to ask you about Lewis's epic post-fight interview, so I thought I'd keep it to the actual fight. He's got a six-fight winning streak and seems to be gaining popularity, but I can't shake the feeling that somebody's going to come along and beat him soon. Am I wrong? Uh, See, that's his whole thing, though. This is part of Derek Lewis's whole deal, is this constant creeping sense throughout a six-fight winning streak, okay, that the next one. The next one is where he's finally going to run up against somebody who will be able to exploit all the the holes in his game. It keeps seeming like that's going to happen. Yeah, and this particular fight against Travis Brown was kind of a big hurdle for him to to clear, I guess you could say. You know, he does have the the six-fight winning streak going now, but aside from that, those wins over Roy Nelson and Gabriel Gonzaga uh, last year, uh, Derek Luce is one of those guys who has beat... I don't know that I want to say nobodies, but he's beat a lot of nobodies. You're going to sit there and call Shamil Abdarakhimov a nobody? Yeah, Damian Grabowski. You son of a bitch. The grabber. Grabzo. Victor Pesta? Does the name Victor Pesta mean anything to you? So this was... Uh, I the, guess that's a no. This was the fight that we thought would uh, would give us the story on Derek Lewis about his fitness as a uh, as a heavyweight contender, a surefire heavyweight contender. Uh, and I don't know that it necessarily did. We got more of, I guess, what we're used to seeing out of Derek Lewis, and that is that he goes out there, and frankly, uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about Travis Brown's performance a couple questions later, but Travis Brown in the first round comes out uh, pretty patient, pretty, you know, looking much improved, I thought, over what we've seen from Travis Brown uh, in the recent past, lands a couple of j- just those painful-looking front kicks which almost double Derek Lewis over in pain and just don't look like any fun at all to uh, to accept and absorb. Uh, but God damn it, Derek Lewis, he just excels at dragging dudes into the kind of fight that Derek Lewis can win, which seems, you know, maybe above and beyond all of the other attributes of Derek Lewis, including like his mental toughness, his savvy, uh, maybe his surprising ground transitions. Uh, and his ability to fight on the mat, I think above and beyond all that, his weird, kind of in a Nate Diaz style kind of way, suckers guys into having the fight that he wants them to have. Yeah. And did that to Travis Brown and uh, ends up knocking him out in the second round. Well, you know, I heard Dominic Cruz on the post-fight show refer to what Travis Brown started off doing, doing well with those kicks, uh, saying it was like you're poking him with a broomstick. And all you have to do is stay on the other end of that broomstick. If you keep doing that, then it seems like you're going to be successful. And honestly, when Derek Lewis kind of grimaced and grabbed his gut and faded back into the fence, that's when I thought, well, here we go. This is over. Because you just really don't see very many instances of MMA where somebody is clearly visibly bothered by a body shot and then they shake it off and keep going. Like, yeah, if it's bad enough for us to all be able to see it, you know, for them, them to be able to see it up, or in the, up, up in the upper bowl area, then usually that means everybody saw it and you're about to go down from it because the other guy's going to keep hitting you there and it's not going to get any better. Like, it's not, you're not going to just shake that off in a matter of moments. And so I was kind of prepared for that to happen. And it seemed like Travis Brown was for a little while there sticking with it, doing the right thing. And then he, 
like you said, allowed himself to get suckered into that, like, all right, well, here I'll just kind of dive in with this right hand and in so doing bring my head right into the range that Derek Lewis needs in order to just smack me. And he just doesn't miss a lot of opportunities. When when he gets that chance to do that, he's going to do it. I, I think that's one of the things that really separates him. And, again, I, there's a tendency we're all going to have to write this off as, well, this is just some heavyweight bullshit. This is just what happens. You throw him out there. They start swinging them things. Anybody can go down. It doesn't necessarily tell us anything. Um, but it, it does tell us something about the guy's mental toughness, the guy's fortitude, and the ability he For has sure. that he's always going to have that power that when you come in there to try to finish him off, he can always turn the tables. Yeah, and maybe even in addition to that, I know that after this fight he said he was going to take some time off, but eight fights in two years for Derek Lewis dating back to February of uh, 2015, which is frankly an insane pace for the UFC heavyweight division. But uh, he's a spry young 32-year-old. He is comparatively Spring young. Spring chicken in, in the heavyweight class. At least class. in this aging division. Uh, but... Yeah, I would say Derek Lewis's durability, just his ability to fight that much and, you know, this kind of uncanny uh, ability that he has to turn the fight into the kind of fight he can win are, are probably the guy's best traits. Uh, but then to Charlie Penville's question, now things get really serious. They do. In the heavyweight division. They do because you, you get moving toward the top Yeah, there. Derek Lewis is number eight officially on the UFC heavyweight rankings. He came to the post-fight press conference of this fight and called out Mark Hunt, which I thought was like a savvy call out for Derek Lewis because if you start looking up the rankings of, you know, in the heavyweight division, you see guys like Francis Ngannou and I think it probably behooves UFC matchmakers to keep Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou away from each other yeah. as they continue to build their resumes. Well, just I because, would watch, though. No, absolutely would watch. But that's kind of all there is right now for uh, com comparatively relatively young guys in the heavyweight division who are still up-and-comers. And there'll but be that, time later on to match those guys up if we want to. And, uh, you know, beyond those guys, you got Ben Rothwell, Junior Dos Santos, Alistair Overeem, Cain Velasquez, Fabricio Verdum, and then your champion, Stipe Miocic, all of whom <laughs> shape up as difficult matchups for Derek Lewis. So if yep. you were going to pull a guy out of that crowd and say, which one of these dudes is going to give Derek Lewis a Derek Lewis style fight that he would have the best chance to win. I'm thinking that it's probably Mark Hunt, depending on what happens in Mark Hunt's fight against Alistair Overeem at UFC 209. So I thought, you know, not, not only did Derek Lewis put on a tour de force in all Derek Lewis style categories this weekend at this fight night 105, but he also, I think, you know, called out the right guy. Yeah. You want to do the next question? Sure. This one comes from, and I'm going to read it as written, Suzanne Beast Feeding 258 Davis. Now, okay, first of all, congratulations to Suzanne Davis and Dr. Vet out there. Mazel tov. Um, recently, yeah, welcoming a new child into the world. And also, I understand Suzanne Davis having some medical complications. We hope that she's feeling better. Uh, also, I'm not sure if, okay, because it seems like, she would be breastfeeding right now. Might be right now. Eight, yeah. Maybe as she's listening to this, well, suckling yeah. her child. If she's doing it 25-8, yes. Sure. sure. Uh, and is she just being a, another level of clever by removing the R and turning breastfeeding 25-8 into beast feeding 25-8? Or is the child itself a beast? I, there are numerous beasts in the Davis slash vet household that I'm sure need to be fed somewhat 25-8. This is, this is how you know Suzanne Davis is journalist of the year is because even with just writing her name in the question, she gets a bunch of different layers to it. Now it's I'm like, going to read the question. It's like peeling an onion. 
So, Derek Lewis just got on mic and said, he calls himself a man but likes to put hands on women. Because of my own experiences with domestic violence, I thought it was dope as fuck. However, I can see validity in the counter-argument of keep private life private. Was it inappropriate? Did he go too far? Did he go just far enough? What do you two dorks think? I assume she meant to send us to a different podcast, but yeah. we will answer this question anyway. The two dorks podcast. The, the two dorks couldn't be here today. Um, okay, this is brings up an interesting situation of many to arise out of Derek Lewis getting on the mic after the fight. Um, because my first reaction was, oh shit, he really went there. Yes. Yeah. Because this is a thing that's just kind of buried under a lot of the discourse surrounding Travis Brown at this point, that he was accused of domestic violence uh, by his former girlfriend. The UFC did one of their investigations of it, by which they mean they hired their own law firm to go check it out and said, everything is fine here. Don't worry about it. Travis Brown came back into action. We were all told to forget about it. Uh, it's not a real thing. And then we all just went on. And Derek Lewis, you know, it's definitely not something that fans have forgotten, certainly. Like, everybody still has that in their minds, I think, about Travis Brown. And then Derek Lewis brings it up right away, and basically, and uh, several times, even at the, the press conference afterwards, basically saying, like, I was glad it was a late stoppage because it gave me the opportunity to beat up on a dude who is a domestic abuser uh, more off or, you know, more severely. Um, and... My concern wasn't that, like, hey, it's private. You should leave that private. That's not right. my concern. That story has already been covered by all of the MMA news websites, so it's, right. it's out it's, there. That's not like, you know, if you get if you and your girlfriend break up, you get a divorce. Oh, you, guys, no. you guys have a messy, you know, separation. That's your private life. That's personal life stuff. That's That's your business. If you had committed a crime against somebody, if you had assaulted her, then that no longer is just like your private life. Like that, that is you committing a crime. So that, that then becomes kind of public. My concern is that he was never convicted of domestic violence. It's just something we heard. We heard the accusation. We believed it and we kind of ran with it. Uh, and I, by we, I mean just kind of like the collective MMA hive mind. And it seems, and Derek Lewis kind of feeds into it by saying that. Whereas if like, Let's say, for the sake of argument, that you're Travis Brown, you know you didn't do any of those things, you you are legitimately wrongly accused of that, and you hear that right after you've been knocked out, assuming you were conscious en enough by then, then you kind of feel like this is some bullshit. Like, how I'm never going to be able to escape this thing, even though I never got the chance to have my like literal day in court over it. Right. Uh, and Travis Brown has spoken on the subject here and there, although I would say he's done it sparingly. Like, I think everything that you said is accurate and right. Um, I would just add to it that Derek Lewis is not under oath while he's up there talking to Brian Stan to talking to true professional Brian Stan, <laughs> who somehow is holding it together during that Derek Lewis Committed post, straight man. post fight interview. Uh, I guess if you're Travis Brown and you feel like this has unfairly dogged you, um, there's nothing stopping you from going out there in the press and trying to clear your name, right? If you had in fact been falsely accused of this alleged domestic, right? yeah, he did, but like, it's still obviously out there. Like, right. I'm just speaking to what you said, your point, like if you were Travis Brown and you thought that that was an unfair stain on your reputation, like, uh, you know, there's nothing stopping you from going out there and trying to set the record straight all over again. For me, it wasn't really like I didn't have a moral or philosophical qualm with the part where Derek Lewis calls out Travis Brown for being an alleged domestic abuser. The weird part is where he mentions Ronda Rousey, right? Okay. Where Ronda Rousey's fine ass at, uh, which 
got to hand it to Derek Lewis for his delivery on all this because <laughs> you got to back the tape up on this thing, right? And like, I'm, I'm watching this at home with my children asleep. I have the volume at a reasonable level. Uh, I had to transcribe Derek Lewis's post-fight interview for the story that I wrote on Bleacher Report. I had to, you know, turn the volume up and back it up to make sure I heard what I thought I just heard. Not only that, but also uh, the way he kicked off the post-fight interview. See, I was just going to say, that statement, I had to back it up to make sure I heard or what I thought I just heard, kind of sums up his whole approach to post-fight interviewing. Let's talk about this Ronda Rousey thing briefly, though, right? Because, A, that was funny. <laughs> but, B... Kind of weird, right, for Derek Lewis to on one hand say, I was happy to beat this guy up because he's an alleged domestic abuser, comma, allow me to sexually objectify not only his girlfriend, but a woman who, at least in theory, works at the same place I do. Not that, like, the UFC is a... And is kind of a favorite employee. Right. And But not that the UFC is, like, your standard office-type situation, but it's still weird, right, for Derek Lewis to... uh to say this about a female fighter. Okay, let me unpack what you are in, implying here. Right. What okay. you're saying is that he knocked out Travis Brown, criticized Travis Brown's past or alleged past treatment of women, and then immediately pivoted to a statement that sounded like he felt like now Ronda Rousey ought to be interested in him or something to that effect. It was the public how you doing, right? And, okay. Was it a public how you do like? I don't believe that, I mean, Tra- that Derek Lewis is really like, all right, now is my opportunity to, to make right. a run at me and Ronda Rousey no, becoming ab- an item. Above and beyond all else, it was a joke. Yes. Right? But at the same time, like... Uh, it did kind of treat her as the spoils of war. Yes. In a weird way. Yeah. Um, and you know what? It was like, it would have been even weirder, even weirder if he had said that about someone less well-known. Like, I feel as though... The fact that Ronda Rousey is like this big public figure slash superstar in the sport, like, I don't want to say it made it okay, but it kind of like justified the jokiness of it. Of, uh, like, to me, it would have been weirder and more like inappropriate if he had said it about a girlfriend that Travis Brown had that none of us knew, right? If he was like your fine ass girlfriend, Terry. That would have been creepy. Right. That like would have been even creepier. Known... I'm saying the thing that like made it funny was that it was, it's Ronda Rousey, like one of the biggest stars in the sport. Not that it's, and still, but still, you can tell, I think, as I speak about it, I'm conflicted because A, it was funny and it happened at the end of this three and a half hour fight broadcast where there were no superstars and Derek Lewis was kind of the only thing going on fight night 105. And he goes out there and he starts cracking these jokes. So it was funny, but at the same time, it was like, that's kind of weird. To say about a, a female employee. Okay. Co- a co-worker. Let me, let me flip this hypothetical to you. Let's say Valentina Shevchenko goes out there, a, beats Amanda Nunes, takes her title, and then turns right around and says, Now where Nina Ansara fine ass at? Are you cool with it now? It's, it's less weird, I guess, just, <laughs> just because of the like gender issues involved. But I don't know. Are we okay with what Derek Lewis said? I'm, I'm kind of torn on it. I am a little torn as well. Um, but, and it seems like you're definitely though going to get away with it no matter what, because 
Travis Brown and Ronda Rousey kind of the unpopular power couple among indeed. MMA hardcores indeed. these days. The high school's least popular couple. Yeah, which and especially, you know, I sent you the the picture I saw on Twitter that somebody had put the the caption relationship goals under two side-by-side photos of them looking kind of like identical while being laid out on the canvas, and that's where it starts to feel like I don't think people that rich and famous are easily bullied, but it kind of seems like a lot of the smart kids on the internet are sure trying. Next question this week comes from Albert Aguilera, who writes, I like Derek Lewis. You like Derek Lewis. We all like Derek Lewis. He's now on a six-fight win streak and nine and two in the UFC, and yet he gets no hype train. Is the reason why we like him, social media, post-fight interviews, etc., the reason the UFC brass seems to shy away from promoting the current longest active heavyweight win streak? Could it be all the sex he's been getting? Obviously a Fulton and Rourke user. Uh, <laughs> but really, where is Ronda Rousey's fine ass at? So you can see this is a thing now. <laughs> well, we, gotta, we have a thing going here. Uh, but I think this is a valid question, right? Like Derek Lewis has created a, a, a persona for himself that is popular among hardcore MMA fans in the heavyweight division, which badly needs young talent and badly needs uh, beloved characters. And yet, you look at him and you think, he's not the kind of dude that the UFC is going to send on Ellen, right? So that makes you wonder... Maybe 106 in Park? What is the increasingly corporate-minded UFC going to do... There's things to do with this guy. ...with a dude like Derek Lewis? I agree with you. I mean, maybe Ellen's not his thing, but there there are shows out there that could really stand to benefit from having a, a personality like Derek Lewis show up and just sit around and just say whatever is on his mind at any and I think he if anything for, for one thing the saying that there is no hype train I mean this is his second main event in a row you could right. argue that like hey, okay they're both the Fox Sports one shows and they're not really loaded with other talent and they're like you know he fights in like Albany and then Halifax uh, Nova Scotia so they're not really throwing him on their big stuff but he is at least headlining the small stuff, so that's something. Uh, and he shows, I think, the ability of a fighter in this media age to do a lot of work himself. Like his his Instagram, I have sent his Instagram stuff to people I know who are not fight fans at all. And they will be like, let me know when this dude fights because I'm invested now. Like I can't, like I don't know why, but somehow something about the dude is super funny. Let me know when he fights. Now I he's like the only fighter I care about seeing. And I think that that stuff really works. I do agree that maybe for the UFC, it's a question of how do you leverage it? And the I think the question here is, can the UFC and WMEIMG, who had touted their ability to leverage their kind of entertainment network to help build stars, can they think outside their usual boxes? Because like you said, Ellen's not going to be the one for that. You can't just be like, all right, what do we do? We usually just send him on Conan. I mean, Conan might work for Derek Lewis. But you, can you think outside of that normal like playbook and come up with an idea that works that's tailored to the fighter rather than trying to make every single fighter fit in your little you know, uh, cookie-cutter pattern? Yeah, I think all that's true. And I also think that the popularity of Derek Lewis is a reminder – uh, that MMA fans will choose whoever the hell they damn well want to like. Uh, and it's kind of like a recurring theme in this sport. Like, you can prop up Paige Van Zant and Sage Northcutt and try to make those your marketable people, but the, but there's always going to be the Diaz brothers. The Diaz brothers who sort of became stars in this sport, 
uh, in the face of all that or in the face of any kind of like corporate support. Uh, and I think Derek Lewis is one of those dudes. Like he's just going to be a guy that the hardcore fans are going to think is hilarious and love to watch fight. Cause he goes out there and uh, has his own brand of exciting fights. Uh, and I think you're right that that is going to be a thing. And we'll have to see if this new UFC ownership group uh, can in fact leverage that and perhaps even could use you know, that that popularity to try to uh, open up some doors that had not previously been open to uh, the UFC with the the like kind of standard way that that it promotes its fighters. So I think that that is something that remains to be seen. Can't tell me you can't do Conan's clueless gamer bit and him and Derek Lewis playing the UFC video game. I I don't know what that is, but like I would I, I, I would support it. Oh, I man, would, Dundas over here. It's too late for me. I'm already in the sack by the time Conan comes <laughs> true, on. True, true. There's a question from David Washington. He writes, did Travis Brown owe Mario Yamasaki some money or something? Please, discourse. This Short was, and sweet there. Yeah, effective, though. This was a late one. This was a late stoppage. Uh, as I think we say every time, I don't necessarily like to jump all over every MMA referee when they pull off a gaff. I think it's a super hard job. I think there are a lot of high expectations. Uh, and the position that you are in is that you have to make a split-second decision that then ends the sporting contest in a way that cannot be undone. So that's like uh, the triple whammy of like officiating pressures. But this one with Mario Yamasaki was late as fuck because Travis Brown was out cold. And it wasn't just a late stoppage, but it was kind of like a nonchalant stoppage by Mario Yamasaki. Just the way that he sort of eased between Derek Lewis and uh, Travis Brown uh, was was so sort of like non-committal almost that Derek Lewis landed one or two punches to an already unconscious and prone Travis Brown. You know, I remember during my cage potato days is when we came up with the uh, metric for determining an, when it was an early stoppage, if you can pass the what the fuck test, like where when the referee steps in there, if you are capable of immediately looking at the referee, preferably getting to your feet to argue with the referee, but immediately looking at the referee and saying, what the fuck is your problem? Like, why did you stop that fight? If you can do that right away after the stoppage without, like, falling down as you try to do it, then, okay, you're right, early stoppage. I've come up with my own a new system. Me- a new metric. For telling when it's a late stoppage. Okay. If I have time to say, hey, come on, or where are you at? Yamasaki, where are you at? Or stop the damn fight. If I have time, I'm still working on exactly how we want to word it, obviously. But if I have time to say that during the finishing sequence and complete that verbal ejaculation, if you will. Wow. And if, and then and then the fight is stopped after that, that's how you know it was a late stoppage. We could it, call it the verbal ejaculation test, but that, I think, leads people in the wrong direction. You know, we'll workshop it. We'll, we'll, we'll figure something we'll, out. We'll keep after it. I think that that's a decent way to figure it out, though. And I think that you had time to... To say that a few times here yeah. with this Travis Brown stoppage. Well, and I think maybe one of the things that confused Mario Yamasaki was that when Travis Brown goes down initially and starts taking some of the punches on the ground, he has his hands kind of frozen out in front of him yeah. in the posture of a man who is fighting, uh, but they're not doing anything. And he doesn't really seem aware of you know the ability to do anything at that point. He's He's past that. He's crossing over into the dark lands. And then he kind of goes, his arms kind of go limp at his sides, and then they kind of come back. Um, but still, 
an experienced referee should have known at that point, you know, you don't just look at just at his hands. The, the posture of his entire body suggested that he was done in that fight. Uh, and there was ample opportunity to step in there before he took, you know, those extra two or three or four there at the end. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a late stoppage. And again, though, you're right, because we or at least I was among the people wondering if one of those stoppages earlier in the night wasn't uh, a little bit early. Um, so it is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't thing. But with this situation, man, you got a heavyweight on there slamming right hands on that guy's chin. You got to get in there. Yeah. And Travis Brown in the first round had taken it upon himself the first time Derek Lewis uncorked a barrage of punches on him. Uh, and he was just kind of covered up against the fence. Travis Brown made a point of looking at Mario Yamasaki and being like, I'm okay, don't step in and stop this. And for all we know, Travis Brown is the kind of dude who tells the referee in the back before it happens, don't, do not jump in and give a late stoppage. Yeah, and you don't get to do that. That's true, but I'm just saying, like, if we're looking for mitigating factors here, there might be some. I still think that this one was kind of egregious in, uh, in its lateness and, and, you know, unnecessarily put tra uh, Travis Brown in harm's way. Speaking of which, here's a question from Clark West, who writes, I'm not saying we should feel bad for Travis Brown for obvious reasons, but damn. Remember back in 2012 when he was 13-0 and and 29 years old and looked like he might be the next big thing in heavyweight? Five short years later, the wheels have done falled off. We can. What can we blame this on? Is it all the fault of the Red Kings, Edward Targaryen's? Can we blame Rhonda somehow? People are just, <laughs> just dying to blame Rhonda for everything, every damn thing. Uh, didn't Brown used to be at Jackson's? Was he just not as good as we thought all along? Or is this just some typical UFC heavyweight fighter shit? Did used to be at Jackson's and, uh, might maybe one of those dudes that would consider a return to Jackson's as it was, we've seen that before, you know? Um, and yeah, you're right. If you want to go back to 2012, right? I mean, 2012 was when he was on that kind of initial sprint after coming into the UFC. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't exactly fighting the very top competition at first. Right. Um, he had that fight. That, you know, the first one he lost was to Bigfoot Silva where he got injured, yeah. you know, in that one. And I still was at that fight. He tore his hamstring, like tried to throw a weird spinning high kick pretty much right out of the gate. Like first things first and, uh, tore his hamstring and ended up getting finished by, uh, Bigfoot Silva in the first round via TKO. And I will tell you this, that was, that was Travis Brown's first professional loss. I have almost never seen someone as depressed as Travis Brown at that post fight press conference. And he was basically like, I don't lose. It's not a thing that happens to me. And, and like you could tell he was really broken up about it. And that makes me wonder how, how things are going now that like he's lost five of his last seven fights. Yeah. Well, maybe he had a chance to get used to it a little more. I don't know that that's the kind of thing you get used to. Maybe if not. you're a competitor like that, but uh, well, then, maybe. You know, he rebounded from that. He he knocked out Gonzaga. He had that that fight against Overeem where it looked like he was done, and he battled back into that one and won. Then he had that one against Josh Barnett where he prompted us all to question the nature of the 12 to 6 elbow rule. Um, but also, you know, that one he's credited often with kind of changing the our perception of the possibilities from that position where one guy is digging for the double leg up against the fence and the other guy is defending uh, and. You know, he showed us that that could be a really offensive position for the guy defending. Uh, but then comes that fight with Fabricio Verdum where he gets hurt kind of early on. And then Fabricio Verdum just kind of, you know, shows out on him. Uh, that fight against Brendan Schaub, the knockout against Andre Olovsky. He knocks out Mitrione and then goes on this three fight skid. But, you know, two good people, you know, yeah. Verdum again, Kane Velasquez, then this yeah, one to Derek De Lewis. De yeah, Derek Lewis and, uh, 
he had that loss to Bigfoot Silva when he tore his hamstring, but then Derek Lewis was the first person that he's lost to in addition to that who is not a, a former champion. But now he's 34 Yep. on a three-fight skid at heavyweight, the division where you can always come back and win two in a row and suddenly we're talking about you for a title shot, so it's not like you know, you're know you dead and buried by any means uh, in that division. But it does seem, based on what we've seen recently, like something's got to change for the guy. And it seemed like we'd heard a little bit about, I like how we're changing it now to Edward Targaryens. We're just going to keep changing that name until you cannot tell who the hell we're talking about. It seemed like maybe he's getting a little bit away from that. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like maybe a, a, that's going to be the solution he ends up coming up with, I would guess, is to change the training camp. Yeah, and like we said at the top of the show, this was a situation where I thought Travis Brown looked a lot better in this fight than he had in, in recent fights, and... and uh, it's starting to seem kind of like he's a guy that in some ways can't catch a break, especially in the wake of this Derek Lewis loss. Uh, and I don't know if it honestly is a situation of him bumping up against the glass ceiling of his own talents or whatever. I think it's probably uh, a mixture of a lot of different factors. You know, guys lose a couple fights and they, they start changing everything, looking for answers. And sometimes I don't know that that's the best way to go about it. Uh, maybe you just end up in some cases digging yourself into a deeper hole. I will say this, like one of the things that continues to make Travis Brown a compelling UFC heavyweight, if you indeed think that he is, is that this dude seems to have all the tools. Like uh, when he's out there fighting and winning and looking good, you consider this six foot seven inch monster who is in no way fat. Like he's not out there with the beer belly looking like, a computer-generated version of a UFC heavyweight, like a creative fighter UFC heavyweight. This dude is lanky and has what Randy Couture would describe as those long levers uh, that that <laughs> provide him with some of his punching power. And, like, physically, he's just, like, a pretty impressive athlete for a UFC fighter. So I think that's one of the things that makes his fall from grace, like, doubly perplexing or doubly interesting, kind of. I mean, you say that you think that changing up the training camp is not maybe the solution. Do you think there's any way he doesn't get better as a fighter if he goes back to Jackson's? I think, yeah, he probably would. I mean, I don't know why he left in the first place. I think it's, you know, one of those situations where a guy loses a couple fights and he's like, well, this ain't working. And then I the next thing you know, you wake up and you're at the Red King Edmund Targaryen's place. I think one of the reasons he might have left rhymes with a Bonda Blousey. Well, there you go. I guess we can blame her. These are the... Impressive how we found our way down that path eventually anyway. We. <laughs> okay, this one comes from Dallas O'Brien. Meathead has a kidney stone and now Fedor's fight is canceled and I am sad. So I got a two-parter for you. Would I have been more sad if this fight had gone off? And are kidney stones a type of deal that sneaks up on you on fight day with no warning and boom, suddenly you're peeing out a solid rock at DFW? Or do we think Mitrione might have had some notice on this? I'll hang up and listen. This was a weird one, right? And I have not had a kidney stone, so I don't know if it's the kind of thing where there are warning signs where Matt Mitrione is like, something is wrong, but I just think I can get through this fight and then we'll deal with it. And then suddenly on fight day, boom. Yeah, uh, I haven't, I haven't had done. one either, but from what I hear from everybody, they're awful. Yeah, I don't think that they're, that they're pleasant it at all. Makes you really fear the, the just ongoing revolt of the body as you age, uh, that stuff like this can just start happening to you. And from what I've heard from people, like while there might be like some warning signs that it's not just like an immediate, you know, the warning signs might be days for all we know and subtle enough that when you're also getting ready for a fight, you might think, 
Okay, maybe this I is got just punched. Yeah, I got punched, or I'm nervous, or I, you know, I got an upset stomach, or, or you know, maybe you can just write it off to a lot of other stuff until the moment where you can no longer deny that something bad is going on. So that, but the question about would we be more sad? I felt like I had just gotten to the mental place I needed to be to enjoy this fight right when I heard that it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, uh, Bellator caught a bad one here, especially since we had kind of been. Uh, pumping up this weekend as a chance for Bellator to get out there and potentially have the better of the two heavyweight fights between uh, Fedor Emelianenko versus Matt Mitrione and Derek Luces versus Travis Brown. You mean the more watched of the two heavy, not the better of well, the two maybe, heavyweight but Who fights. knows, man? It could have gone any way. Like, as it turned out in retrospect, like Derek Lewis against Travis Brown turned out to be pretty stinking compelling and probably would have been better than uh, Fedor versus Mitrione had it even happened. But if... Fedor and Mitrion had gone out there and had a one-round slugfest, and maybe Fedor lands the murder ball sent from heaven and notches a victory, and then Travis Brown and Derek Lewis go out there and, and you know, lie on top of each other for 25 minutes. It could have been a different story. Alternative facts. I'm just over here spinning a alternate reality for you. <laughs> uh, here's the thing that, that makes me think that uh, we might have ended up more sad, though. Like, we all kind of thought Fedor was probably going to lose this fight to Matt Mitrione. And when I started to think about it in terms of the larger picture of the sport, I realized, you know, within the space of a couple months, we will have seen BJ Penn try to come back and just get waxed by Yair Rodriguez. We would have seen Anderson Silva go out there and kind of uh slump his way to a unanimous decision victory over... uh uh, uh who did Anderson Silva beat? Uh, Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson, yeah. And then we see Fedor Emelianenko go out and potentially look like a shadow of his former self against Matt Mitrione. That would have been a lot of uh, our previous heroes going out there uh, and getting old and being old right in front of our very eyes. Yeah, it's not like it happened just recently to Fedor, though. No, Fedor's been tracking that way for a while, but this would be potentially the, I don't know if that I want to say deal breaker, but like, there was a potential that this could have gone real bad for him. Right. But I feel like that potential was something I had ample time to make my peace with, at least. <laughs> uh, so I would have been okay. You do think about, though, Bellator. Like, man, they got to feel kind of snake bit here. Uh, and, yeah. you know, just from, and I was uh, talking over email with some of the, the media people I knew who were, they were there, and they were kind of confirming that the mood from the Bellator people was, in fact, uh, pretty down. Well, As yeah, you can it's imagine. gotta be when you when all that when you send out an email, the subject line of which actually says the show must go on, yeah. and then you gotta go out there with Josh Thompson against one of the Pitbull brothers as your main event. Uh, when you think you're gonna get Fedor and Matt Mitrione, yeah, I could see how you would be. It just feels like you wrote down the names of fighters that were in Bellator. You shook them up in a hat, you throw it out there, and then it's Josh Thompson versus a Pitbull brother. Like, that just seems like... Choose your own pit bull brother, <laughs> yes. Josh Thompson. Well, and, of course, they were talking beforehand. Scott Coker was saying, you know, I I hope that we can do two million or more viewers with this. And that seemed plausible, that with Fedor in the main event on having the Saturday night to yourself on Spike TV, uh, that you could do two million. And then instead, just another Bellator. I didn't even bother setting my DVR once I saw that email. You cold. I was like... I'll just, if anything, I'll catch up with this online if anything jumps out at me. Speaking of sad, before we leave this topic, I got first, I got this uh, Facebook message from somebody who I don't know who had read uh, my column about Fedor uh, and kind of the enduring appeal of Fedor that I wrote before the fight. 
He wrote, I had to personally let you know how I like that Fedor article. It gave me chills. My first live MMA show was Fedor versus Verdum in San Jose. I'm a Fedor fanboy. My first live MMA event, and he loses. Now, seven years later, he comes back to San Jose. He will win, and life will be complete. Your article was the icing on the cake in terms of my hype. Cheers. Then, a follow-up message from him Saturday afternoon at 5.33 p.m. Shit, never mind. Guy working parking detail told me main event is off. <laughs> and you could now... Now, now who's sad? Yeah, everybody's sad. You bought the ticket for this one. You get all the way down there. You get to paying for your parking, and the parking guy is the one who has to break the news to you? Yeah. Damn, man. The parking guy probably said Josh Thompson is going to fight one of the Pitbull brothers. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Matthew Blackmore. He writes, Gavin fucking Tucker. Being from Newfoundland, there's not a lot to be excited about when it comes to professional sports. Aside from the scattered hockey player from Bonavista and that one time that we won a gold medal in curling, there's not a lot to root for coming from The Rock. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did they seriously call it The Rock? I hope so. <laughs> they uh, better now. So to see a newfie from Ship Cove, population 60 of all places, get booked on the main card of a UFC event, you can imagine that everyone who's heard the letters UFC booted up TSN to see him on the big stage. As excited as everyone was, I don't think anyone expected Mr. Tucker to look and move like that. Are you two as impressed as I am, or am I just on a whiskey-fueled high? Discuss that shit, please. It could be two things. You, yeah, we could all be excited, and you could just also be drunk on whiskey. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Gavin Tucker did, in fact, go out there in his UFC debut and kind of run circles around Sam Cecilia uh, in their featherweight fight on the main card of UFC Fight Night 105. Uh, I'm going to tell you my two favorite things about Gavin Tucker. First, that, that comes from The Rock? He's a newfie? Let's call that a distant third. Uh, if you go on Sherdog and look him up, it says that his nickname is Governor. <laughs> I saw that, yes. Which, I'm into that. Uh, and, and second, if you look him up on his UFC bio on the UFC.com, uh, it says that he went to college for like jazz studies, that he studied music at St. Francis Xavier in Canada. And jazz studies is what you tell your parents. Just so you can have another semester to buy some time and figure out what you're doing. Ordinarily, I would have read that about a UFC fighter and thought, that's bullshit. <laughs> I kind of believe it about Gavin Tucker. Like, that that he might, like, either want to fight you or want to sit down and talk about John Coltrane. Okay. One of those two things. Yeah, um... Okay, one thing I will say is that from the time this fight was made, and you kind of kind of look at where it is, who is involved, and then when you look at how it went down, it did seem like Sam Cecilia was there to kind of fill that role, didn't it? Yes. Like a kind of plodding, tough, uh, you know, take two to give one kind of fighter who is not going to be terribly hard to hit, but is going to be hard to put away, um, who can, you know, make a, a, a scrap of it no matter what you give him. Um, but is also just going to kind of keep walking into stuff over and over again without being like too slick in any one area to really, you know, cut off Gavin Tucker and, uh, manage to turn the tables on him. So, you know, not saying like that it was a setup fight for him to win or that Sam Cecilia is an easy out or anything, but it, it did seem like they were kind of relying on Sam Cecilia to be pretty Sam Cecilia out there. Um, and, you know, he lived up to that name in a lot of ways. He, he was super tough. He did take a lot of shots where it seemed like, like, for instance, that one sweet uh, uppercut that Gavin Tucker threw where he switched stances, kind of faked the kick, uh, got Sam Cecilia to duck down, and then came from the other side with the uppercut, and you thought, well, shit. If the guy's still standing after that, that's when you tell yourself that you're focusing on winning a decision. 
uh, because you're not going to knock that guy out. Right. Sam Cecilia, it's not as though he's a a first-rate featherweight in the UFC. He's an unranked guy. I don't think that we should throw up our hands and declare Gavin Tucker the second coming of George St. Pierre like he's the new Canadian star or anything like that. But like this performance was good and impressive enough to make me think, okay, Gavin Tucker, uh, jazz aficionado, the governor, I will watch your next fight. Gladly. I will gladly watch it and see how you do against the next UFC level uh, competition that they serve you up. The strange thing about Gavin Tucker, Ben, came into this fight 9-0 and uh, and has been fighting since 2011, but after having four fights in 2011, uh, really slacked off in the, uh, in the, in the, like, uh, the, the degree to which he fought just twice in 2012, once in 2013, then not again till 2015, and then once more in 2016. So kind of seems like Gavin Tucker, uh, maybe while he was doing his university studies, I don't know, uh, has been kind of part-time in it. Although, uh, got to think that's going to change now that he's out there uh, UFC-bound. Or maybe just being a newfie from The Rock, it's tougher to get fights. I was thinking about this when I talked to uh, Faraz Zahabi's brother who fought on the prelims, and I was asking him kind of it seemed like his record had been a little sporadic, and he was like, the scene wasn't really doing a whole lot in Montreal. It was tough to get fights, and nobody wants to fly you out uh, you know, to fight in Vancouver or something if you're only like 4-0, and and so you're kind of in a catch-22 where you, you can't get fights, and then you can't get fights because you don't have fights. So... Maybe something like that is going on. Also, the more I hear about what's going on in, in Newfoundland, especially, uh, you know, Ship Cove, population 60, do you think there's any way we can make a stop on the rock on our way to Estonia to do that, that Baruto tour? That sounds like perhaps the only place we could possibly go that Newfoundland would be on the way. So maybe, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Let's just, let's think about it. That's all I'm saying. But this one comes from Cabrini Zumhofer. Whoa, that... That's not a real name. I'm just going to go on on oh. the record, out on a limb, saying that is not a real name. I'm just saying, if you need a fake passport, <laughs> either Cabrini Zumhofer can do it for you, or at the very least, knows somebody who knows something about it. I'm telling you that if you got 150 bucks, you can probably get a passport saying you are Cabrini Zumhofer. <laughs> Question. Any reason to believe Sarah McMahon is back, or maybe just arriving for the first time? Disguz. Well, Ben, you know I'm not – you don't got to twist my arm to get me to say nice things about Sarah McMahon. Uh, she seems like a good human. She has had uh, some adversity in her life. Uh, she comes into the UFC women's bantamweight division with uh, high-level grappling credentials. And she has always seemed like the kind of person that could make waves, you know, given the right circumstances. I still think – that the UFC 170 fight she had against Ronda Rousey may have been stopped a little bit prematurely, although I will freely admit that it didn't look as though Sarah McMahon was about to jump up and whip Ronda Rousey's ass or anything like that. Uh, but I did feel like she didn't fully get a chance to um, see how that one was going to go. Um, then she lost the back-to-back fights to Misha Tate and Amanda Nunes in 2015, but since then has now won three fights in a row in the last two, uh, the both of them by arm triangle choke, the first one over Alexis Davis and then this uh, one on Sunday night against Gina Mazzani, uh, both looked pretty gosh darn impressive. Although I guess you got to take into account, uh, the level of competition in this last fight. Not that, uh, Gina Mazzani is a bad fighter, but this was her UFC debut and I believe she took it on fairly short notice. Uh, and Sarah McMahon is going to be a handful for anybody, uh, who comes in on, on, you know, for their first UFC fight on that kind of, uh, situation. I guess my one, uh, caveat 
about Sarah McMahon, the one thing that I still wonder about, and frankly, it's a thing Ronda Rousey brought up when I interviewed both of them before their UFC 170 uh, fight, was does she want it bad enough? And it still seems like Sarah McMahon, even though she's stepping the game up a little bit in the post-fight interview department, still really, really friendly, which in every other walk of life obviously is is a positive. Uh, but in fighting, just there is a little something that, that makes you wonder, like, does she have the eye of the tiger in terms of like being the women's bantamweight champion for an extended period of time? Okay. If you could just take away everything you know about her from interviews and just focus on what she's done as a fighter, like in actual athletic competition. And if Ronda Rousey had never raised that question, do you think you would arrive at that question on your own? Um, no, not if all you had was, uh, was her athletic achievements. I still think you would look at, at the, you know, her wrestling background and then look at the, the three UFC losses and be like, huh, this doesn't seem like it's translating quite the way we thought it would. But at the same time, I guess the reason that we're answering this question on the podcast is it seems like maybe she's turned it around a little bit. Well, and also to play devil's advocate for one thing, she now also gets to say that she has never lost to anybody who's not a UFC champion at some point. Um, so there's that. And, you know, the this fight was her 14th professional fight. So maybe there's still room for some growth there. I mean, I guess, you know, you, you might look at her age. She's 36. So maybe uh, the, the clock is kind of ticking on, there, on her there. But I also think she's clearly a good athlete. Uh, she clearly has a, a really good background in wrestling. And if she can kind of figure out, I think, maybe she went through some of those same struggles that a lot of ex-wrestlers do where they try to figure out what kind of fighter they're going to be when it's easy enough at first to blow through everybody just with your wrestling and you know what jujitsu you've picked up uh then you learn to punch some and you want to do some of that and then you know it sometimes it takes uh former like decorated grapplers a little while longer to settle into exactly what their style is and what they want to be doing out there i mean two straight arm triangles gives you kind of a hint of where she's headed yeah um, I don't know. You know, I'm not willing to say that uh, Sarah McMahon doesn't want it bad enough if she keeps beating people and getting on the mic to say, give me a damn title shot in much nicer words. Don't turn this into a situation where I am not the chief Sarah McMahon apologist of the co-main event podcast. I don't know what you have against Sarah McMahon. you cannot hang with me in that department. Why do you, why do you want to see Sarah McMahon fail? Let's talk about that. Man, this is unfair. I've been painted unfairly here. <laughs> uh, can we talk briefly about... Uh, Gina Mazzani going out there with a sloth tattoo on her arm and what appeared to maybe be Thomas Jefferson tattooed on her inner thigh. I did not catch that. Didn't catch either of those things because the sloth one is is noticeable. Okay, I noticed that tattoo. I was not really sure. Who gets a tattoo of a sloth? Or, as I heard it pronounced when watching Planet Earth 2 uh, this past weekend, sloth. What I'm telling you is I got questions because I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But I think the sloth tattoo is dope. It doesn't exactly, though, if, if you're the kind of person, like, you know, if you fight somebody and they have a grizzly bear tattooed on them and they're, you get the sense that, like, okay, they think of themselves as a grizzly bear maybe, this is kind of like their their spirit animal and maybe they're going to be kind of scary. If you go out there and you fight someone who has a sloth tattoo. I'm thinking reverse psychology. They're trying to <laughs> trick me into a false sense of security. Okay. And then they got Thomas Jefferson because, you know, they, they love them some enlightened thinkers. They know what's up. Uh, also, before we move on, awesome that Sarah McMahon choked her out and then like immediately told her it was okay. You know what? Okay, I I appreciate this sentiment. 
of what Sarah McMahon was trying to do. Maybe give her a second. You know, maybe don't choke someone out and then immediately start telling them why they shouldn't feel bad about this one. I mean, I get what you're trying to do there, and you could hear a little bit of what she was saying when she was like, hey, I had three months to prepare for this, so don't feel bad that if you couldn't come in here on two weeks and win. Um, I get that. Maybe, though, that's a backstage conversation. Maybe that's one you do while you're you're buying them their second Heineken at the hotel bar there in, on The Rock. You know? Next question this week comes from Meriton. Halifax is in The Rock. Halifax is, is it's the, the facts. facts. The facts. Okay. Halifax. Uh, from Meriton Galfin, he writes, So, who's the new Goldberg, and what do we think of him? Another short and to the point question. I assume he means new UFC announcer Todd Grisham, who made his play-by-play debut at, at Fight Night 105 over the weekend in the booth with Brian Stan, uh, which makes you feel like Brian Stan is so good that they're like, Stan, you got the new kid. Go out there and break them in. Also, I'm not going to just gloss over your pronunciation of Merton Galfin's name. I mean, Chad Dundas might fuck up a lot of pronunciations, but if you throw an umlaut in your name, his high school and college German is going to come out and play. He's not going to let that one slide by. It's not an umlaut. It's something else. Some kind of accent mark that uh, I'm assuming is a long A sound. It's like a little circle. It is a little circle. It's not an umlaut. So you just guessed I'm, that So one. for all I know, I screwed it up. You went umlautish with they it, did. though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think maybe a little too early to make a final judgment on Todd Grisham there. I was, though, like, I feel, it feels weird seeing Brian Stan standing there and he's not there with John Anik. Like That's feel, the worst thing about it, feels right? like you're seeing your, your, your mom dance with somebody who's not your dad. It does. Yeah. They're like, there's, can't help but feel a little sad that, that Stanek isn't around anymore. But I thought Todd Grisham, uh, did a pretty good job. Like he's, uh, he's smooth. He's professional. He's not the kind of guy that I have to constantly pay attention to, which is frankly what I look for in a play by play announcer. He's going to be kind of unobtrusive out there. I saw some people giving him some flack. Uh, seemed like he called MMA the MMA a couple times, but I didn't actually notice him doing that. I just saw people getting on him for it on, on Twitter. Uh, but he seems good to me. Uh, he seems uh, a little bit John Anik-ish, but like he's a little bit more excitable. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, did you think the chemistry was a little weird, though? Like I saw people pointing this out on social media, but it did seem like uh, Stan and Grisham uh, were a little bit more argumentative. Well, you know, A, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. B, I did notice a couple times where it seemed like maybe uh, – like for one thing, I remember him saying something about uh, the – before the – Sarah McMahon, Gina Mazzani fight where he said something about Mazzani missing weight and how maybe uh, her taking it on short notice had affected her there. And Stan kind of jumped in with, absolutely it affected her there. And you can kind of feel that kind of thing like maybe like the guy who is brought in to do MMA and we wonder how seriously he has followed MMA up to in his life up until this point. And then he's sitting there with the dude who... You know, until fairly recently was a professional MMA fighter and him kind of feeling like, okay, this son of a bitch, this, this Johnny come lately, gonna try and talk like he knows. And I think the MMA fans are naturally gonna do that too. Like, even if you're not really screwing it up, if we think we hear the MMA in there, we're gonna be like, okay, show us your papers, man. What's, what's the first pride event you saw? What kind of DVDs you got at home, bro? What are your bona fides, Todd Grisham? Explain the difference between a Kimura and an Americana. Go. Is that a Darce or is that an Anaconda choke, motherfucker? Like, we're just gonna do that because oh, that's wow. how, that's how, I'm, how even uh, I am feeling a little scared right now. <laughs> that's how <laughs> MMA fans are. Uh, so, you know, we won't entirely be fair there all the way around, but if you give him some time and he shows himself to be a, a good play by play guy, I mean, 
I got no complaints really so far. Is it my turn? It's your turn. From Jordan McClure. During the Hendricks-Lombard fight, they casually mentioned that Hendricks was happy at 185 pounds because the cut to 170 was costing him his vision. I know you can black out from weight cut, but a lasting effect seems a stretch. Have y'all ever heard of this? Please expound. I have not heard of this, and I thought it was weird. And he mentioned it in his interview. Oh, did he? Yeah. He said, I can see now in this post-fight interview. That's bizarre. That is bizarre. And just makes you think that weight cutting is really bad for you all over again. Also makes you think, what was going through your mind at the time, Johnny Hendricks, when you were like, huh, it seems my long-term vision has been affected by my choice to keep trying to unsuccessfully cut down to 170 pounds, yet I am going to resist all these calls for me to go up to middleweight because I feel like I might be too short and small for the division. Uh, By the way, what does that street sign say? Is this Broadway? Should I turn here? Somebody tell me, because I can't see, because I'm a welterweight. So, speaking of people that we might want to pump the brakes on having a conversation about whether they're all caps back, Johnny Hendricks goes out there and gets a victory over Hector Lombard, unanimous decision. It wasn't a fight that necessarily set the world on fire all the way around, uh, but felt good, I think, to see Johnny Hendricks get a win and to see Johnny Hendricks so goddamn happy after it was over. Uh, it feels like middleweight is the right place for him in terms of the weight cut. Uh, do you still have a hard time visualizing him going out there against the true giants of that weight class? Yes. That's not going to happen very well for him, I don't think. Um, you know, like you, I thought there's a part of me that thought, okay, good to see something positive happening in Johnny Hendricks' life. Now maybe Chad Dundas won't send me YouTube clips that are just like a seven-minute dirge played over the slow decline of johnny Hendricks's life i'll say this the people have spoken and everyone besides you loved that youtube <laughs> okay fine um you, you know and especially you see him in that third round of that fight and he does seem to be having more fun in there than we've seen him have in a long time he seems to be feeling it a little bit and actually enjoying himself um but like you said for one thing he's fighting another guy who made a run of it at Walter Waite, so it's not like he's fighting uh, a guy who seems like a natural fit for that middleweight division either. And he didn't exactly blow his doors off. You know, he I think he deserved that decision, but it wasn't like he went out there and dominated Hector Lombard. I think you throw him in there against the, the Derek Brunsons of the world, and Johnny Hendricks might have himself a problem. Next question this week comes from us. From the Cheeseburger Walrus. Hey. Nice. A few weeks ago it was Bader. A few days ago it was Sirkinov. Now it's Krilov. Seems like all the UFC's light heavyweight top 10 is hitting the old dusty trail. I'll put it to you. What's really going on? Does WME IMG have a plan to do or do they need to quit being so cheap and pull out the pocketbook to start writing some damn checks spelled in the Canadian fashion? Discourse. Uh... Yeah, man, weird news this past week since the last time we recorded the podcast. We knew uh, Misha Sirkinov was probably gone from the, U- from the UFC. Uh, now, uh, Nikita Krilov also, Nikki Thrills, uh, seems to, well, there's been some reporting back and forth about what the actual story was. Uh, some people said he, choose, he chose not to resign with the UFC. Uh, some other reports said that he was still in the middle of his contract but had already notified the UFC that he would not sign another contract and that he was going to go fight for some Russian organization, which is easy to believe since there are one million of those. Uh, but then, then the UFC just decided to kind of cut him loose early. Uh, in any case, 
several high-profile losses for the UFC light heavyweight division, uh, which does make you wonder what the future of this thing is, especially since Sirkanov and Krilov were two of the kind of young up-and-comers here. Yeah, and not a whole lot of other young up-and-comers that you can choose. And also, the I think you got to separate them away from Bader when talking about like what this says about the the pattern or the strategy, because Bader, it seemed like you, I could understand the thinking a little bit more there, where you feel like you've seen where he can go. He's on, you know, the the other side, edging over into the other side of his prime. He's already had his day against some of the top light heavyweights. He's probably not going to be a title challenger, and yet he's been around long enough that he might be expensive to keep. So you figure, all right, we'll let Bellator have him, and they'll do the usual Bellator stuff with him. Okay, I, you know, I can't get too mad at that. Um, when it starts to seem, though, that you are not interested in guys who very well might be the future of the division just because maybe they are not huge ticket sellers. And, you know, again, we don't know exactly everything that went into some of these decisions. You know, it's one thing for you to say, like, this guy wasn't into the contract terms we offered, and we don't know which side is being unreasonable about, you know, if he's out there asking for Conor McGregor money and will settle for nothing less, or if the UFC just wants him to uh, keep fighting like a, you know, tough winner or something, even if he's climbing up the division, you don't know exactly where everybody is on that. But it, it, you don't want to start to seem like you're not interested in the fighters who are actually winning fights and turning into, you know, really good talents just because, hey, he's an Eastern European guy who isn't doing much for us when he fights in Las Vegas. That, that will be kind of a kiss of death for you, I think, if you're the, especially under the new ownership. If people start to think that that's what you're doing, um, they will not like that. Especially if, since if you look at a, any top 20 list of the young up-and-coming prospects in mixed martial arts, uh, 16 of them are Russians. So if you're the UFC and you want to have the best fighters in the world, I would think you better still be interested in the Russian fighters because <laughs> there's a lot of them coming up. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Although, you know, it's weird to have this the already shallow light heavyweight division seemingly losing some of its best up-and-coming fighters is an, an odd development. Yes, it is. Um, this one from Scott Pfeiffer. I assume that this is a phonetic spelling. It's a phonetic he, spelling. He saw us coming. Yeah. The following question is brought to the CME in haiku form. The female cyborg is cleared to fight champion. What is she to do? This is kind of a weird story, right? Because uh, USADA kind of, I don't know, you want to say unexpectedly, but perhaps suddenly last Friday uh, completely cleared Chris Cyborg from any wrong, wrongdoing stemming from her uh, seeming violation of the uh, UFC drug testing policy. Uh, and she's, as far as we know, back in all caps. Retroactive TUE, which right away, that's a combination of words that should make us instantly a little bit suspicious. It does. Retroactive TUE is, is a strange thing to say. Uh, the, the official explanation, as near as I could tell after reading it at the, at the, you know, when you saw to put out the public notice that this had happened, uh, is that they're saying the investigation determined that Cyborg didn't start using this banned substance until after her last fight, is my understanding. Uh, and then she failed a, like an out-of-competition drug test. But that seems to conflict with some of the things that we've heard from the cyborg camp in the wake of the initial failed drug test. There's some weird stuff going on. There is some weird stuff going on. And I would argue that maybe we it bears looking into further uh, from those of us in the media. But for now, true, let's, let's take the question on its face. She's back. 
all the the hurdles are out of the way. Now, if that's the case, if you don't give her the next shot at the featherweight title, assuming that she is willing to comply with whatever timetable that you, you can set up for her, then it starts to look like, what are we even doing with that shit? Right. Because that's the only fight people care about right now, is get Cyborg in there. Right. Well, and depending on whether Jermaine Durandamy's trick hand is acting up yes. again, because we know that it's... It's either, if the trick hand is acting up, it either means that Cyborg has been cleared to fight or a storm's a-coming. It's one of those two. Thunderstorms rolling in. Next question this week comes to us from Will Baber, or Will Baber. He writes, Michael Bisping said recently that GSP trainer George Blanco said that GSP is close to a deal with the UFC. Fast forward to now. That deal is reality. Uh, Bisping said the fight they're targeting, Bisping is quote unquote the fight they're targeting, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility. As of right now, I would assume that Yo Yoel Romero is my next opponent, uh, but there's always that wild card. That's a, a quote from Bisping. Uh, I think, says Will Babber, GSP should fight Anderson Silva instead. It's several years too late, but Bellator proves people don't really care about that. I think there's quite a few people out there who will only see that Anderson Silva won his last fight, uh, not trying to litigate that decision, and that GSP has been retired uh, for a while. I think that it would be bigger money, a bigger money fight than Bisping, and I would expect GSP to win. Thanks for reading. Any thoughts? Uh, so yeah, now we know GSP is back in the mix in the UFC, um, and it seems like uh, just going by the reports I saw of uh, Faraz Zahabi's appearance today on the MMA Hour, uh, if we are to infer from his statements, it sounds like you're either looking at Anderson Silva or the mythical, mind-blowing George St. Pierre against Conor McGregor. Oh, come on. It seems like the least preferable choice is the welterweight title fight against the winner of uh, Tyron Woodley and Stephen Thompson. Uh, you know, what I say is Anderson Silva makes a lot of sense. If you're just going to do the, hey, he's coming back to have some fun and make some damn money. And, you know, we're going to try to leave the divisions alone because there's interesting stuff happening in both those divisions. And we don't want to just throw him right back in there and, you know, make the line even longer on some of these guys who have really stuck around and paid their dues and earned their their place. Fine. I'll get that. I could also, if you tell me that he's going to come back and he's going to face the winner of T. Wood uh, versus the Wonder Man. Cool. I can accept that. He was the greatest welterweight ever. I can accept him coming back after three years to jump in front of the line at for a title that he never lost. Okay. The one thing I won't accept is Michael Bisping because that division has too much other awesome stuff that can happen right now. There's too many other good middleweights hanging around there, uh, edging into their late 30s, needing to go ahead and figure this shit out. And there's too many awesome fights that can happen. It just makes no sense to put gsp in there solely to make a quick buck which would be the only reason to do it um but anderson silva fine like yeah. i mean mate let's go ahead and make the super fight too many years too late we won't care we'll accept that as a thing that happens in mma um even the conor mcgregor thing i mean i think that is that one makes you start to feel like have we given up trying to do anything logical any kind of logical progression with conor mcgregor right. and th there there would be so much money on the table that the answer, I think, would be yes. We have given <laughs> yes. up doing anything logical. That fight, I would be super interested in seeing that fight. You know, you could do it at welterweight or at 155, but I feel like it would make me sad. Just to piggyback on what we were talking about earlier, because I feel like there's a good chance George St. Pierre ends up getting knocked out in that fight just from, you know, everything that we've seen from Conor McGregor up to this point. Although I have no idea. If you told me George St. Pierre was going to come back three re years removed from action and in his mid-30s and still be out there just taking motherfuckers down left and right, I would believe you. So I guess that's the thing that interests me about this 
return of George St. Pierre's. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll 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 watch any of those fights. Though I agree with you that the Michael Bisping one, for whatever reason, seems the least preferable to me. Uh, we got a few minutes left. Is there anything we can do quickly here? Um. Well, now you're just, okay. This is just dead air over there. Okay. Um. From Isaac Spooner. So Brock Edward Lesnar has retired from MMA. Are we surprised and do we care? Opine, if you would. Is retired in quotes there or does he just playing it straight? Playing it straight. Because Brock Lesnar, Brock Edward Lesnar has retired from mixed martial arts. Although, uh, if we found out next year that he was coming back for UFC 300, uh, and was going to fight, you know, whoever, John Jones, uh, I would not be that surprised. Yeah, you know what I would respond with is USADA phone emoji, phone emoji, because that's why he is announcing his retirement. That's why he's even going through the trouble of saying that, because he has to, like, that's the only way to keep USADA from knocking on the damn door down out at the farm, is that's the way to, like, otherwise they would keep testing you during the period of your suspension unless you tell them that you're retired. However, if you unretire while the UFC still has a deal with USADA, uh, then you would then have to begin serving the suspension. Like, it, you can't serve the suspension in retirement. Um, so that's what makes me think that the retirement is either intended to be final or intended to see if the new owners want to continue this USADA deal. And if they don't, then, hey, man, all bets are off. I'm going to read this one because it's the first question we've ever gotten, which appears to be uh, arguing on behalf of Drew Fickett. It's from Billy Googe, who writes, How can this season of tough be called the redemption season if you do not include the Knight Rider, Andrew Robert Fickett? For fuck's sake, he was supposed to be on the inaugural season of tough after beating eventual nine weight class contender Kenny Florian, but unfortunately ran afoul of Johnny Law and missed this chance. Since then, he's been possibly the most tragic of my favorite fighters. How can you call this season redemption and leave out a fighter who never got his initial tough chance when you have a, in all caps, currently active UFC fighter on the show? Please add reason, logic, and pragmatism to my purely emotional argument. Good day, gentlemen. Uh, I'm going to say knowing Drew Fickett a little bit and having talked to him and, and written about him and about his troubles, including some of his troubles with Johnny Law, one good reason to exclude him from the show would be insurance purposes. Because I think maybe your premium goes up a whole hell of a lot if you tell them that Drew Fickett's going to be in that house and that the guys are going to have free access to booze. Come on, man. That's a that's a liability suit waiting to happen. You're telling me that the insurance company might have a file on Drew Fickett? <laughs> they they got a file. They they refer to him actually as the Night Rider. They don't even call him <laughs> Drew Fickett. They, like we like, hold on, we got a Night Rider clause in our, in our agreement here. There's no way this is happening. Quickly before we get out of here, are you like me? Did you look at the cast for the new Tough Redemption and think? All right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to watch it live, but I'm going to actually go through and watch it when my DVR automatically records it this time. Yeah, I think that I'll this at least give is, it a uh, chance. Weirdly enough, strangely the most interesting season of the Ultimate Fighter that they've had in a while. All you need to hook me at this point is the words guest coach Shoney Carter. <laughs> Come yeah, on. I'm I'm down. You know he's not doing anything. You can get Shoney Carter. If he's around, Mr. International could be anywhere. That's true. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you want to get a hold of us for future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comaineventcom backslash internet website. 
backslash World Wide Web, uh, and click the, click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can indeed sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You really think that uh, Drew, Drew Fickett would be that big of a liability? The dentist? Wasn't he the dentist for a while? Are you thinking of uh, Nick Thompson? No, that was the goat. Nick Thompson was the goat. goat. Pretty sure Drew Fickett was the dentist. Then maybe. I can call that up. Yeah. I'm saying even Drew Fickett.